0: necessity is the mother of invention, right? And that, I mean, that really was the case for us. We were so bootstrapped. You know, we, we, we couldn't raise capital, so we raised capital from, you know, friends and family and a few angel investors, but it just forced us to be extraordinarily creative. You yeah. know, so our early go-to-market, Sanger, we experimented with three go-to-market models.
1: I'm Sangram Vadre,
0: And I'm Brian Brown co-authors of
1: MOVE, the four-question go-to-market framework. Helping you confidently take your organization's next MOVE. Let's suppose we are giving you instructions on how to fly a plane. Higher, farther, faster, and more reliably. The advice we would give varies depending on where you are in the lifetime of your airplane company, right? Trying to get it off the ramp and into the air for the first time is much different than tweaking the design so your plane can reach more cities. In a similar way, in order to make your go-to-market process work, you have to figure out the best way to implement it based on the stage of your business. So what needs to happen? You have to understand the go-to-market maturity curve. And we thought, who better to teach us than Scott Dorsey, Co founder of Exact Target, which was bought by Salesforce for $2.7 billion and is now the Salesforce Marketing Cloud as we all know it today. Scott knows exactly what it takes to navigate a company through each of those crucial stages of the go to market maturity curve. So take a listen. Awesome, Scott. So it's been such a wonderful time just going through so many of these conversations. And I want to start right off the bat, and, and then I want to get into the more genesis story mm-hmm. of exact target. Um, but what's interesting has been as we have researched and talked through this go-to-market thing, it's, it's interesting as people are saying, well, there's a sales-led go-to-market. Right. Then there is this idea of uh, customer-led go-to-market. There is also this idea where not only we have sales-led or customer-led, but product-led go-to-market. And then finally, you know, we had Christopher Lockhead talking about like, well, there is a category led, uh, go to market. So Scott, you have done it all. You have seen it all. What are your impression of these four disciplines of go to market, which connects with you? Or is there a, is there a pattern or something that you would look at that and say?
0: I think the common thread across uh, all four categories, Sangram, is understanding the customer. You know, I really do like, I, I'm a big fan of product led growth. And I think the PLG movement has been, uh, terrific for our industry because it's led us to better products and more frictionless experience for our customers. But one thing that cannot be for- forgotten is you're building products for customers. And the closer you get to the customer and the more conversations you have and the better you understand their needs, the more successful you're going to be as a technology uh, product builder and a technology company. So so that's that's what I always think about is go-to-market should be multifaceted, it should be multidimensional, but at the core, it should be about understanding customer needs, understanding the problem you're solving, and then building such a level of intimacy with the customer that they they show you the way. They illuminate the path. They give you an indication of where you need to take your your product, your platform, and your services. And uh, that's one piece I I hope in today's era of product-led growth that doesn't get overlooked that ultimately, it's still all about the customer and all about delighting them with an incredible experience.
1: That never changes. And it has been a central theme for a lot of the things. So let's just go back in time with exact target. What was the problem? What was the reason and even the circumstances Mm -hmm. that you were when you you and your co-founder started ET?
0: Sure, Sangram. So like I think like every great business, you start with a problem, a meaningful problem to solve. And we were focused on helping small businesses and marketers leverage the digital age, mm. the, the digital movement that was happening. And you know the analog forms of marketing and communicating with customers were, were very antiquated and really not very personalized and certainly not data-driven. I was incredibly fortunate to pair up with Chris Baggett, you know, my, my co-founder and actually my brother-in-law. And Chris had come from a database marketing background with R. Donnelly, where he had spent really the majority of his career helping brands better understand their customers, and then send personalized and targeted communication via print, you know, yeah. via catalogs. Yeah. So Chris really had the vision of how database marketing was gonna be transformed and accelerated you know, via the internet, which was great. For me, I was coming from a different path. I had gone back to graduate school. I got my MBA at Kellogg, mm-hmm. Northwestern, from uh, 96 to 99, and they did an extraordinary job building curriculum around internet technology, entrepreneurship, during it,
1: that time. During that
0: time, yeah. and it, it really changed my life. I went to graduate school thinking I wanted to be a management consultant yeah. and came out convinced I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. Well,
1: why, why, why? What was well, that, uh, Tiffany?
0: It, there are a couple different, couple different components. One was that we had a lot of fireside chats at school where tech yeah. entrepreneurs from Chicago would come in and, and talk to us, and I was so inspired and wanted to be them. Mm-hmm. You know, And even to this day, I'm very happy to do fireside chats or speak or share the exact target story, hopefully to yeah. create that spark you know, in some, someone else. So I'm grateful to those Chicago tech entrepreneurs that, that did that for me. And then further, our capstone course was to study Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. study the Silicon Valley ecosystem and bring recommendations back to the city of Chicago on how we could drive more innovation, how we could create a tech economy how we could create the Silicon Prairie. And I I loved it. So we made a couple trips to Silicon Valley. I I really had never been and met with startups, large tech firms, VCs, met with Eric Schmidt, actually when he was still at Novell prior to leading Google. And just all of us came away just so inspired and so convinced that the internet and technology was our future. And uh, so that gave me kind of, I'd say, the preparation and the courage to take uh, my vision and, and work I'd done for three years kind of, breaking apart the earliest internet business models and trying to build a point of view on what business models were gonna work in the world of software and technology, and then married that with Chris's uh, database marketing background, uh, recruited a uh, Dynamite uh, third co-founder, Peter McCormick, yes. and, uh, and we were off to the races in uh, December of 2000.
1: December of 2000, what, was there a moment where all three of you, well, you, you both started and then you had Ed Peter join in, like, was there a moment that was that solidified like, no, this is the way we are going after market? Or was it after a few iterations of it? Because a lot of times people think that, well, it's, people have a perfect idea from day one. Yeah. And you and I, starting that we know that there's, it's far from truth. So walk through the process of how many iterations, what it took, what was the first year like, maybe the first month like, maybe the first week like, for you to just go through that with your team.
0: Yeah, this is funny, Sangram. I, since I was a freshly minted, you know, MBA, I was in the mode of writing business plans, you know, and <laughs> yeah. and, and conducting research. So that's that's really what we did. Yeah. I sat in a Caribou Coffee in the Chicago area and wrote the exact target business plan, kind of end to end, obviously with a lot of input from Chris and Peter. And then at a later moment, Caribou Coffee became a customer of ours. So that was a nice oh, you know, kind nice. of serendipity moment. Yeah. But we really did write a, a fairly comprehensive business plan focused on permission-based marketing. If you remember Seth Godin's yes. you know, kind of seminal book on, on getting permission from your customers, and once you have that permission and trust, really opens the door for a different level of communication and relationship building. So that was kind of an early cornerstone you know, to the vision we had around the business. Early days, it was not perfectly clear whether we were gonna be a services agency or a software company. Mm. Thank heavens we chose, chose, <laughs> chose the software path. And then we really started out targeting very small businesses. Mom and pop retailers. And Chris had a lot of small business experience. So our earliest customers, Sangram, were dry cleaners, pizza shops, restaurants, sporting goods stores.
1: How do you get those customers?
0: Back in the day, it was really difficult. <laughs> you know it was knocking on doors, making phone calls, occasionally sending emails. And then we attended a lot of conferences. So we went to a lot of industry like events. A, like a
1: laundry store. Like how would you find them to be your customer? They would find you. Believe they... it or not,
0: there was a show actually called Clean 01 in New Orleans. <laughs> we, were, we were there. Uh, National <laughs> Restaurant Clean Association O1. in Chicago. Yeah. We were there. We went, went to every show where we could meet small business owners. And, wow. then, and then not too long into our journey, it occurred to us, selling one small business at a time is pretty difficult. Yeah. So we started working with franchise orgs, and we yeah. went to a, a conference called the International uh, Franchise Association Show in, in Las Vegas, mm. met a lot of franchise systems, and that started to started craft our vision around, boy, if we could sell to a or we'd get a lot of franchisee lo- along the way. And this, this idea of the or wanting brand control and consistent tools across their network, the franchisee wanting to localize the message that started to build what later became our enterprise architecture that worked across very large organizations and very large sales organizations. But the early seed of the idea actually came from franchise systems. And that was, that was all in the, in, in the effort and the spirit of, how do we reach lots of small businesses very quickly?
1: I've been thinking about tipping points, like you know, Malcolm Garbo's uh, whole idea around uh, where companies go from problem to problem market fit to product market fit. And typically, there there is a tipping point where you, as a founder, as a CEO, recognizes this and says, "Hey, we got something working." Because until this point, you're like, "I'll go after anything," right, like right. you know, I'll, "I'll just pick whoever." But then you get to a point where you know what? It's actually it's starting to repeat itself. It's starting to move. Mm-hmm. What was the tipping point for you?
0: Yeah, there's so many, things, So many tipping points along our journey. I think the first was just. Working with small businesses and realizing we could help their business. Mm-hmm. You know, we could help them get to know their customer better and use email and other digital technologies to deepen a relationship and, and ultimately drive more revenue and improve their business. The uh, the next horizon was the franchise system where we started closing large franchise orgs and they were having lots of success. But then I'd say the, I'd say the ultimate tipping point was us building technology that was applicable to any organization mm. of any size, in, in any industry, in any geography. And that's when we started to gain enthusiasm and confidence that this was a much bigger market opportunity. It, it was interesting. Early on, we were unable to raise venture capital. I mean, completely <laughs> unable tried. to. We tried. <laughs> yeah. And you know, couldn't find a venture firm that liked the idea of email marketing for small businesses.
1: Was there any other company at that time that was doing what you were doing, like right? You at- know,
0: Constant Contact was off mm-hmm. to a nice start in, in Boston. There were there were a few players, but the, the industry back in that early two thousand timeframe were mostly larger uh, kind of email service providers mm-hmm. that were services first, product second, mm-hmm. and they were they were catering to the the big you know kind of retailers and big Fortune five hundred email and digital marketing really hadn't reached the mid market and the small business
1: yet. Wow, is there was there a point in the in the two thousands when you talked about email? How many people had that? How many people looked at that as a shiny new thing versus like no, this is like yeah, of course. Like how was it a lot of aha moments from a lot of people? What was the reaction?
0: I felt like there was a lot of skepticism about email all the way along. You know, mm-hmm. saying in your early days, small businesses wondering would their customers actually give them the email address and, and give them permission, you know, to communicate with them in a digital form. So that, you know, kind of had to be proven. And then later over time, there was always a lot of speculation that social and, and mobile and other digital channels would cannibalize email, you know, and that email wouldn't have, you know, as meaningful of a place in the marketer's toolkit. And that, that never turned out to be the case. You yeah. know, we ended up evolving into all forms of digital communication and, and the breadth of our platform was ultimately our strength. But, but email, you know, has worked and even today you know, is working you know, quite remarkably for you know, retailers and e-commerce orgs and, and just you know, companies of all sizes and shapes.
1: Yeah, you know, when we were doing the research for the book, you were so instrumental, your mm-hmm. feedback shaped some of the book. And I'll tell you exactly yeah. a couple of places where it really it literally shaped the book that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going through the move framework with you where we talked about the market, operations, yeah. velocity, and the E at that time was more as experience or something like yeah. that. And you, right off the bat uh, on a call, uh, I think it was you, me, and TK, and Brian, mm-hmm. and you were like, why are you not thinking about expansion? We were like, how so? And you are like, you just yeah. dived into it. So, so talk, to, talk to us about the, the idea of when you start a company, as your go-to-market evolves from problem to product mm-hmm. to platform, how big of a role does the expansion strategy, how did, do you think about it as a CEO?
0: Yeah, no, it's great saying, but I, mean, I I do love the framework of uh, problem, product, and platform and thinking about it, you know, in, in that evolution and early days, you're trying to understand a problem, you're finding a problem that's a meaningful one to solve, and then you build a product and you start to get the signals that the product is working, and, and organizations and, and users are getting full value out of the product, and then ultimately kind of get to the platform and you get to that E, that expansion stage. And that was, I'd say, an amazing set of learnings we had during our journey at Exact Target was always thinking strategically about how to increase our market opportunity. And we ultimately, I think, did a very nice job of that. And we thought about expanding our market opportunity um, across three different dimensions. The first was just segments. So we mm. started out working with really small businesses, and then we built enough capability into our platform, we realized, hmm mid-market and large enterprises could really benefit from our technology as well. So then we went from small business to mid-market up to the enterprise. And all along kept that S&B and enterprise focus and we, we enjoyed serving different segments and we, we enjoyed the challenge of building remarkably simple uh, product to use for the small business and a lot of sophistication for the enterprise. But over our journey, we kept focused on how to move up to the enterprise and solve bigger and more complex problems. Yeah and really how to make email truly mission critical. And much of that was around the operational and transactional message sending. So, you know, kind of market opportunity number one, expansion lever number one was segment. Mm. Uh, the second was product, you know, so our uh, cornerstone product was email, but then over time we added mobile and push and we added social and we added data analytics and, and lots of other products. So we we're always looking at how can we add new products that we can sell into our customer base and help them drive more value. And the three was geography. You know, fairly deep into our company history, seven, eight years, we were still 95% uh, North America and only 5% international, and we made a real concerted effort to focus on opening markets outside the US. And, and fortunately, we were able to do so with many of our larger multinational clients, the Expedia, Nike, Microsoft, they wanted us to have an office in London and, mm. and Melbourne and Sydney, and so we were able to expand around the world by working with these remarkable brands but then also opening markets where we felt like we could gain market share and take everything we learned in the u.s market and apply it in new ways
1: i, I love how customer driven even that is because it yeah. seems like you went after those markets when you started seeing customers and it almost outpouring of what they wanted to do that you kind of leaned into it
0: absolutely absolutely another strategy we had sangram and we'll, we'll talk more about you know go to market but we had a reseller channel that was very strong. Mm-hmm. And when we were a very thinly capitalized, you know, little startup out of Indianapolis, we didn't really have the financial resources to open offices all around the world. But we had a pretty good sense that our, our product and our services were going to resonate in these markets. So we worked with resellers who became exclusive resellers to Exact Target. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, small business uh, owners, they were very entrepreneurial. And we kind of had an understanding that they were successful carrying the exact target brand and product into a new market that we'd ultimately acquire them, join forces and use that as a springboard for our international expansion. And that, that worked out remarkably well. So wow. we ended up acquiring a reseller in the UK, a reseller in Australia, and also a reseller partner in Brazil. Hmm. And that it was a very capital efficient way for us to expand yeah. around the world and gave us a real jump start into those markets.
1: I love that. In during all of these years, like going from zero all the way yeah. to like you know a, a 2.5 billion dollar acquisition, Salesforce. Yeah. I'm sure there were moments of like, here's here's you know it failed. Like some ideas failed, mm-hmm. some things bombed. Like what were some of them? <laughs> we, had, we, had <laughs> the of, we had a lot. a lot of things
0: didn't work <laughs> out very well. Sangram. that's right. Where you know where do I even start? You know we had. We had outages in the early days. You know, starting a starting a SaaS or cloud company, uh, you know, back in the exact target era was so different. Yeah. We actually had to buy servers and rack servers and build out data centers. And, you know, we didn't have, uh, you know, AD, AWS and, yeah. and Google and Azure, you know, quite the way you do today. So there was a heavy uh, capital infrastructure required. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the early days, you know, we had system outages and a lot of bumps in the road relative to delivering product. And, and those were probably the... Most fearful or challenging moments, where you just felt like you were letting your customers down, and we and we certainly didn't want to do that. And I am an, I was a non-technical yeah. uh, CEO, non-technical yeah. software CEO. So I was fortunate along the way to have extraordinary technical leaders and technical talent. But I would say that was probably the largest area of vulnerability was just um, concern over could we deliver the product at such a high level of performance that our customers demanded. And what's really interesting, also Sangram, is you know over the course of time when you're building a a platform that's really scaling and really working and is very transactionally intensive, you actually end up having uh, two areas of focus that are in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. One is stability and performance and scale. The second is innovation, building new things. And those two are in conflict with one another. So I really enjoyed the the intellectual challenge, I would say, of Mm -hmm. allocating resources, working with our technology team, and trying to find the right blend of risk-taking and innovation but also how to focus on scale and performance, because you don't get that right, you know, really nothing, nothing else matters.
1: Oh man, I love that. You know, we, we were talking right before the recor- uh, recording over here is that like the, every company is, has this thing going all the time, you just don't see it. You just see the, the chart that goes up and to the right, nobody talks about what happens in the middle every month, every quarter. It's never all, always up and to the right. It's the squiggly line that actually makes, makes it. And, and we were talking about the, the fact that we have to respect the challenges yeah. that happens within the organization, but we never have to let the vision of where we want to go crumble. Uh, how, do you, how do you make those decisions?
0: You have to keep thinking differently, you have to keep building new products, and it's really why you'll see, you know, Salesforce set an amazing example of the app exchange, but you see it across the software landscape of innovating through partners and innovating yeah. through platform ecosystem, is a strong yeah. way to go, innovating through ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and that's a wonderful way to experiment and try lots of new concepts at scale without really touching the core code and everything that's associated with performance and scale and not letting your customers down.
1: What is the hardest job of a CEO?
0: Toughest job of the CEO, I think is prioritization, you know, time management, uh, probably followed closely by building a phenomenal team. Like if you get the phenomenal team part, right, then, uh, you know, culture and, and, uh, you know, execution and everything associated with building a winning company kind of takes care of itself. But I think you're always, you're always selling, you know, you're always selling your vision to investors, you're selling your vision to amazing people, you want to join the company, and then, and then doing the same with customers and partners. So I think it's having an extraordinary amount of conviction about what you're building and why, and know that you're doing it, you know, for the right reasons.
1: How how does that relate to the go-to-market team? Because that's Really, where um, what I'm seeing in the research of the book is recognizing when your go-to-market team is broken, and or not working. So, love to hear how do you know if your go-to-market is working or not working?
0: (laughs) You know, at at High Alpha, you know, we're we're back to the early days of company company building. You're seeing this. We are, we are. Yeah, we are. We're a startup studio and a venture fund, and we are starting, you know, many new companies per year, all SaaS, all cloud. We've started uh, 28 companies in six years. Wow. 2020 was, uh, was a breakout year for us. We started over 10 mm. just based on, unfortunately, the pandemic you know, yeah. and all the new problems we had to solve and all the different ways that we're working. So uh, that, that was an opportunity for innovation and, um, and we, we kind of took full advantage of it. But what I, what I look for, Sangram, like early days of starting a new company, you have a lot of founder selling mm-hmm. and its founders you know, just having passion and conviction and, and hopefully a network where they can get the early adopters to say yes and try the product. I remember
1: going through that. So that's like phase one, that's (laughs)
0: important. Phase two is are those customers successful and are they renewing and and staying with you and do they really see value? And then then kind of quickly followed by, can you hire a sales team and a sales leader Hmm. who can sell beyond the founder and and create repeatability? So, So I think what we look for when we know something's really working is repeatability and the, the customer is buying for the same reason. You know, there's mm-hmm. consistency of the use case is really important to look for. We have, we have many companies that go very broad early and they're solving a different problem for every single customer yeah. and it gets really difficult to kind of find their power alley and find repeatability. So we find, at least in our experience, the companies that companies have done better, have started with maybe a smaller problem to solve and get a lot of repeatability and then over time they, they kind of expand from there.
1: When you think about B2B and B2C, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, yeah. especially because we all have been talking about yeah. all, almost every B2B company thinks like, we should be more like a B2C company. Yeah. You have lived through Exact Target because you were supporting customers that were B2C yeah. customers, but you were a B2B company for all intents and purposes. How do, you, how, how do you see the B2B and B2B go-to-market motions work and, and companies, and how should companies think about it?
0: I think B2C, you know, is such an inspiration for B2B companies today. You know, we still have a lot of antiquated, very difficult to use, outdated yeah. business technology, unfortunately, that, that companies are kind of forced to run. B2C technologies, you know, tend to be much lighter, faster, friendly, or easier to use. You know, our our kids and younger generation are, are kind of growing up this digital age. They don't age, need so a manual. They do it. not need a manual. <laughs> Their expectations are yeah. remarkably different. Yeah. And um, and that's good. So they're they're... Still, is a very big gap behind how kind of delightful and easy to use B2B apps are compared to B2C. But I think that's still the right kind of aspiration set, yeah. which is products should be delightful and easy to use and fun, and they should just be integrated really seamlessly into our day-to-day life. Yeah. B2B still has a long way to go, and that's why you know it's such a wonderful opportunity to be at you know be at High Alpha, starting new companies and, and developing new ideas. Our our curiosity. Um, you know, continues to get, you know, fueled and, and filled by diving into new areas and, and then looking at old areas that are just ripe for reinvention. And that was the exciting part of the exact target journey is over time, we realized we are onto something really big and really transformative. And if we got it right, we could, we could build, you know, one of the largest marketing software companies in the world. We could do amazing work. When was work. that
1: realization? That, mm. that, that big aha moment for, for you?
0: I think it was more gradual. It's like yeah. hard to say there was like one moment in time, I yeah. think, in...
1: But was Dude. there a revenue? Was there a moment? Was there a type of customer that like, ah.
0: you know you know we I'll, t- I'll tell you one of our uh, one of our failings along the way that turned out to be a huge blessing was that we filed to go public in December of seven. Hmm. Financial crisis hit in o eight, early o eight we were not able we were not able to get it into the public market. and we were we were a very small SaaS company. but at the moment, at that moment in time, Small to medium-sized SaaS companies were going public, and we were, were very well received. So we had been very thinly capitalized. You know, saying we had only raised about six million in primary. Wow. We were forty-eight million in gap revenue, heading to seventy-two million, and we really felt that going public was going to be the right step for us. We'd bring in fresh capital. Mm-hmm. We'd have more visibility as we we're selling to larger enterprises, and it was going and to be kind of the, the right move, that move for, time. for us. So, so we, were, we were forty-eight million in '07. Okay. 72 million in 08 but what happened and it really did turn out to be a blessing was we couldn't we couldn't go public in the financial crisis hit in 08 in the second quarter of 08 there were zero venture-backed ipos zero and we were we were little you know exact target out of indianapolis was not going to be the first <laughs> we were not going to break open the market yeah. but i i didn't want to pull the ipo like i really felt like that was a sign of failure mm. So I was like, we we're gonna stay the course. You know, we're we're gonna we're gonna stick it out. Yeah. So, you know, Q3, Q4, Q one of 09, nothing. It just the market was not opening up for us. It was not it was not feasible. Wow. So I, I like to say we had like all the burden of being a public company with none of the benefits. <laughs> benefits. We had no capital. Uh, Tim, you know, Tim Copp was our our new chief marketing officer. Yeah. Tim started the day we filed for IPO in December of 07. Yeah. And he was in a quiet period you know constraint couldn't, from day one <laughs> yeah you know, we couldn't make any future looking statements yeah. we, everything we did had to be documented back into our s1 document had to be shared publicly so we're in a tricky spot you know for 0, end of 2007 08 and then in 09 it just became apparent we were we were not going to go public yeah. we were not going to be a public company and and that was okay and fortunately we started to get a lot of inbound from late stage vc firms who saw the potential of what we're building and, and actually thought it was advantageous for us to stay private. So okay. we ended up raising uh, $70 million in early 09, another 70 in late 09, and we really hit the accelerator. And it was a, it was counterintuitive actually because mm. many of our competitors were scaling back due to the financial crisis. We saw the unit economics and signals in our business that said, mm, we should be doing the opposite. Yeah. So we went into turbo growth mode uh, when when others were playing it very, very conservative, and that really helped us. We we doubled down on innovation, we doubled down on uh, geo-expansion, we added a professional services team to serve the enterprise, and it gave us so much wind at our back yeah. that by the time we did go public in 2012, we were bigger, stronger, more durable, uh, and, and our growth rates were increasing. Normally, your growth rates kind of decrease with size. Yeah. Ours were going the other direction, but it was really all about the investments we made in that 2009-2010 time frame.
1: Wow! So you almost like so the theme here for me is like in the early mm-hmm. days you couldn't raise money, and that actually helped you build a really solid base. Mm-hmm. Then you couldn't go IPO. That was really good. You actually <laughs> built a company that exactly. can grow. So it almost like all the thanks, thanks for all the unanswered prayers, as I always like to say.
0: You know. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And that, I mean, that really was the case for us. We were so bootstrapped. You know, we, we, we couldn't raise capital, so we raised capital from, you know, friends and family and a few angel investors, but it just forced us to be extraordinarily creative. You yeah. know, so our early go-to-market, Sangram, we experimented with three go-to-market models. Mm. Inside sales, could we hire inside sales reps that would, you know, target small businesses? Field reps that would work mid-market and enterprise, and third was channel, mm. and we worked with digital agencies who had all the services that, that we didn't offer, but really needed a technology platform, and, and were hungry for recurring revenue. So early on, 20 percent of our revenue came from channel partners, and that, that stayed remarkably mm. consistent almost, mm. almost to the end, through the IPO and the sale, the sale of the sales force yeah. was that at least 10 to 20 percent of our revenue came from agencies and channel partners. So we had kind of three legs to the go-to-market stool. Mm. We thought we'd experiment with all three, you know, see which one worked, and you know, it turned out that all three worked. So yeah. we, we kind of stuck with all three over the course of time.
1: Wow. What would you say is today's go-to-market? What, when you're listening, somebody's CEO, listening to this, yeah. thinking about go-to-market, like what advice would you give them? How should they think about go-to-market?
0: I, I, think, the, I think the right dimensions today, you know, building you know, kind of a modern SaaS company is... You have to think about, you have to think about product-led growth, um, at least through the lens of how do I build a product that quickly delivers value that consumers, buyers of the software can find, try, and ultimately become a customer. So I think that's got to be one dimension is mm. the kind of easy, frictionless, you know, onboarding. Second dimension is how do I end up building more company-wide or enterprise relationships once I'm seeing usage and traction you know through that product led growth and and I think that in person selling or now you know via zoom selling is so important mm-hmm. once again just to build relationships and to really understand needs and for companies today you're certainly searching for the best software product and the best solution but ultimately you're 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 searching for the best relationship you yeah. know and the best team that can really drive solutions and can really drive success and drive a long term relationship and in many ways at exact target, I felt like we were maybe better relationship builders than our competitors. Mm-hmm. And maybe even more so than having the best product in the market. So I still think the relationship building, understanding needs, doing discovery, building long-term relationships, helping your customers really be successful, that's ultimately the most important. But that, that's kind of the second dimension. And then the third dimension is is still that channel partner arena of what partners can we integrate with so the products become stronger together, and then what partners can help us reach customers in a much more expansive way than we could on our own. So we try to build that kind of roadmap with all of our early stage companies, product-led growth so there's a seamless experience, relationship building so we can really understand customer needs, and then channel partners or ecosystem partners that can really fuel our growth. What I've loved um, studying and watching and you know, building um, relationships with amazing companies is just when you look at Slack and Zoom and even Salesforce back in the day, and you know, Atlassian and, and so many others that have really anchored in around beautiful, simple products and product-led yeah. growth, they still end up building really large sales teams yeah. and going really aggressively on go-to-market go to just to help uh, sell those solutions up into, up into the market, uh, yeah. bigger deals, more expansive deals.
1: Let's share some stories, stories that have okay, worked, okay. stories that haven't worked.
0: Okay. Having a customer advisory board, CAB, is really important, Sangram, and it's investing in those customer relationships uh, in such a trustful and deep way that the customers will give you really candid feedback about how you're doing for them and and where ultimately they want you to take your your product and your technology. So we, we found we found an exact target, those Cab meetings and cab relationships were really, really valuable. We do a, a fun offsite once a year where we could go away for two or three days, really build personal relationships, understand their needs, their organization, their view of where digital marketing was headed. And it was an exciting time for us also because we were empowering marketers to thrive in the digital age. Yeah. You know, in, in many ways, we thought about thought leadership as helping marketers move into the digital world and we were a technology platform to help them help them get there. So that that thought leadership and understanding the needs was was really, really important. But but through the you know through a couple day off site where you can have fun together, be social, break down barriers, really get to know the needs of your customers, in many ways that's kind of where we were able to drive the best insights. And we would always you know share a roadmap of where we we're going and share our vision and and give customers a voice in how they would prioritize the new functionality that we were building.
1: Was there a time frame in which you should start a cab, versus like as early as possible? I think as
0: early. A... I think as early as possible. Uh, it's to start a lot of companies think cab.
1: That, well, we need to do, be a ten million dollar company know. before you do it, or something.
0: I think, I think sooner the better to start a customer advisory board. They do take work, though. You know, so when I think when you start a customer advisory board, you have to be committed mm. to. Feeding it and investing in those relationships, and it can't be just a once-a-year event. You know, there's got to be, got to be events along the way that are maybe kind of milestone meetings, but there's got to be uh, other forms of communication and interaction to keep those relationships uh, rich and growing, and make sure the communication lines are are headed both directions. So, so I, I found the customer advisory board was incredibly helpful at Exact Target. The other really unique dynamic we had at Exact Target was that our Chief Technology Officer Scott McCorkle, who you know, and Scott is, and Scott's now running one of our high alpha companies, MetaCX, really reinventing the future of enterprise software and thinking in very unconventional ways about UI and and functionality and networks. And so, you know, MetaCX, I think, is going to be a remarkable company. But Scott uh, was so gifted at meeting with our large, sophisticated clients and sharing our vision and understanding what ultimately they were trying to accomplish and really understanding where the world of digital marketing was headed. That in many ways, Scott was our best salesperson. You know, Scott was our, our go-to-market secret weapon and <laughs> and the sales team would bend over backwards and bring Scott into an engagement because he was so compelling with our customers, but then he'd also come back to the shop and have the responsibility to deliver yeah. on all that capability. And you know, in the world of, of, of SaaS and cloud, I found that, buyers are certainly interested in your current capabilities, but they really care about your roadmap and they really care about vision. Mm-hmm. And it takes so much work to move to a new platform in many cases, in particular, if it's a mission critical platform, that they want to see you know, where you're headed over the yeah. next three, five, 10 years, because they don't want to be going out to RFP and changing you know, vendors on a they regular basis. They want to be a trusted partner. They do, they do. So Scott was, Incredible, and I think very unique for a technology leader to be so extraordinary with customers and so customer facing. Uh, that that was that was an important part of our success. When when Scott joined the Exact Target team, he had actually been a an early investor, and advisor, and mentor to me. Scott, mm-hmm. in many ways, knew way more about building software companies than I did, and we were really fortunate. Uh, you know, probably five or six years in for Scott to join Exact Target, and the promise he made to me during the interviewing process, or the exploratory process literally sangram he said i will talk to a customer every day That sounds like really easy to do and and very cliche that's really hard to do yeah you know with internal meetings and travel and vacations and all the stress associated with running a a fast-growing company and scott really held true to that he talked to at least a customer every day and in many ways he had the most informed point of view on where the industry was headed and where our customers wanted us to go. And when that uh, you know, kind of intelligence and um, insight rests in the technology organization, then you're in pretty good shape because you yeah. know that the gap between what the customer needs and what we're going to build is actually really tight.
1: He actually taking that role and doing it, yeah. that that I don't know how many people like to do that. A lot of people say we are a customer-obsessed company. Yeah. And you go back, ask like, when was the last time you talked to a customer? Oh, oh, exactly,
0: exactly. (laughs) And if you're going to get an embarrassing answer, that it's well, it's actually been a long time since I've talked to a customer, or um, you know, a month ago or two months ago. But to to have the cadence to talk to customers every day is so incredibly important. So incredibly important, but really hard to do. It's important for product leaders. It's important for technology leaders. All the customer dialogue can't just resist and can't just exist in the client success org or the sales org. It's got to make its way into the the teams that's actually building products. We recently had a little fireside chat with Jeff Lawson, CEO of Twilio, right. and Jeff wrote this amazing book, Ask Your Developer. And you know the underlying premise of the book is ask your developer what needs to be built. Yeah. And and that works particularly well in a business like Twilio where the customer is the developer. So right. if you're if you're a software developer building products for developers, you're you're the user. You have have pretty keen insight. And and I think that's really, really important. But it gets back to that notion of the the more the product building team, product management and and the software development team, QA, can be around customers and learn from customers and understand what they need, all the better. Because you're really gonna, gonna close that gap between needs and expression of those needs and ultimately what gets built. And uh, I thought I thought Jeff's book that was was, was absolutely remarkable. Ask your developer. Uh, when you think about you know the role of the CMO, I think in many ways you're looking for uh, pattern recognition. You're looking for driving a narrative in the market that is going to really convey your value proposition to a customer or a customer segment in a way where it really really connects. Mm-hmm. Many software companies you know start out kind of very horizontal in yeah. nature, and you're kind of selling one solution in every direction imaginable, and you're, you're trying to find enough signal or, or enough repeatability that all of a sudden you, you kind of understand where to, where to point the messaging and where you're delivering the most value. And over time, when software companies get larger, that's when they, rightfully so, go to more of a vertical or more of an industry approach, and then you can tailor your message in a, in, in a really profound way, you know, really using industry language and vernacular and, and really kind of dialing in on, on what that ROI looks like. And I'll tell you, something, that was that was something I think we did really, really well at Exact Target, you know. And we uh, we did that with small businesses. But then once we started selling up into larger enterprises, we would land a large brand in financial services and work, you know, day and night to make them happy and meet their needs. And then once we had that dialed in, then we'd look at how to market to the rest of the industry and and try to capture the vertical. And um, we did that in financial services. We did that in travel. We even did that in new markets like the Daily Deal segment with wow. Groupon, you know, being kind of our marquee customers. Yeah. So I think it's important to have an opportunity mindset around how is your product being used and what markets is your message resonating the most with. Even markets that previously didn't exist. Yeah. You know, the Daily Deal segment was, was a really interesting one for us. We were, we were growing and serving SMB to enterprise and, and uh, found lots of opportunities with large complex organizations. And then out of nowhere, Came the Daily Deal yeah, segment. Yeah, and Groupon and, 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 Gru- and Groupon is uh, one of my favorite stories because yeah. Groupon actually came in uh, through our small bu- business team, our inside sales team. Mm. We had no idea who Groupon was. They started using our product, volume started really peaking, yeah. and their uh, their president uh, called me and said, "Hey, you need to know more about Groupon. We're, we're going to be your largest customer." <laughs> and, uh, and how
1: big were they at that time? When they the- were tiny.
0: They were very very <laughs> tiny, and I. I, I said that. that would be that'd be remarkable if that <laughs> happened. We'd love to grow with you. Yeah, and um, it was kind of a neat example of where serving SMB to enterprise also keeps reminds you that small businesses can later turn into very large businesses. Right. But uh, but once we started working with Groupon and solving their needs, then we started working with daily deal sites all over the world. Yeah. Uh, but but we but we've kind of learned from our first customer and then built capability to go serve that segment in a really good way.
1: For me, I think that's, that's the biggest. Like, I mean, we talk about it. Yeah. I always talk about the fact that there is really no other culture than winning culture. And winning culture doesn't mean sales yeah. culture. Right. So there's a, the big gap. And yeah, I think yeah. you really had that balance, like in yeah. the orange culture was, was, was real. Yeah. Like, I, I had first an experience of it. So how did you yeah. go about building culture? And maybe just also talk about from a go-to market perspective, how, how important is the culture that you need to have as, uh, as a company?
0: Yeah, no, thanks for asking, Sangram. So, you know, culture was our, our I, I'd say, our, our largest differentiator, our, our greatest competitive advantage was, was culture, you know, at Exact Target. in in the early days... You noted days, that,
1: sorry to interject there, but yeah, I think you noted that yeah. in your filings too, right?
0: Oh, we did. We did, yeah, yeah. Yes, so.
1: I remember reading it, and I saw that you, you, as part of your differentiation, you said culture, orange, was one of your differentiations.
0: No, you're exactly right. You yeah. know, when you're you're going public and building that S one document, yeah, you have to really articulate what are your competitive advantages. Yeah. And and we felt strongly, you know, culture was one of our, you know, top five competitive advantages. And what was really interesting is that the, you know, investment bankers kind of hear that all the time. I mean, yeah. of course, every CEO and every company feels like culture is is one of their secret weapons, one of their greatest differentiators. And, you know, they said let's it in the first draft but you know it's likely to get cut you know by the time we go to print and and thankfully it didn't it it didn't get cut and the bankers through working with our team you know over the course of many weeks and months saw firsthand Mm -hmm. what the orange culture was about and and why it was such a differentiator and why it was kind of woven into everything we did at exact target and ultimately our S one uh, document we went to print with had an orange cover. Yeah. Uh, when we went public on the New York Stock Exchange, it's we so had orange. orange carpet rolled out everywhere. Yeah. Uh, every everyone working the trading desk floors wearing an orange uh, Exact Target jacket, and uh, it just became evident, you know, that orange was was more than a color and and more than an internal branding exercise, but it was a culture that really tied our team together all over the world in a unique and extraordinary way. And in orange. Meant something different to everyone, but but the the commonality was energy, vibrancy, caring for one another, caring deeply for your customer, and you know, kind of giving your job everything you have because you don't want to let the person down next to you. You know, yeah. it's it became something bigger, you know, than 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 all of us, if you will, and uh, and that played out in some really powerful ways, even a couple years after Salesforce had acquired Exact Target, and you know, the Exact Target brand kind of rode off into the sunset and <laughs> the Salesforce brand took over. One of our uh, former employees started a Facebook group and over the course of a weekend had over a thousand members join. And it was all, and that, that Facebook group is still super active and, <laughs> and vibrant today. It's called Orange Crush. Yeah. And it was about staying connected to one another and, and knowing what orange meant. And mm. I've always thought if a culture lives on, beyond the company even existing, yeah. Yeah. you know you're doing something right, you know you have something powerful. But how does that translate to go to market? I think it translates to go to market in some really tangible and meaningful ways. The first is, if you have a high trust culture, teams are willing to be creative, they're willing to try new things, they, they feel safe. And that's, that's super important, in, on the marketing side in particular, to, to be creative and different and bold and be a thought leader you have to feel like you're in a safe environment and realize everything you try is not going to work. So that that foundational trust is really, really important. And then for the sales team, the go-to-market team and and customer success team, I always felt that if you love the company you work for so much uh, in in a natural, authentic way, you're just completely going to go the extra mile Mm. uh, for your customer or, or for a prospect. But it's got to come from a like a really authentic place, yeah. and it's really interesting when you when you look at company values and company priorities. Many companies start with kind of a customer first mindset, and it's hard to argue, you know, against yep. that. But but I actually think employee first is more powerful. And if you get the culture right and and build a company that extraordinary people want to be a part of it, and and they want to. They, they love the company so much that it doesn't even feel like work, and they're gonna, they're going to really go the extra mile for one another and for their customers. You end up having a higher level of customer success and happiness because you started with the core, and the core is your own team and your own yeah. culture, and, and making sure employees love coming to work every day.
1: Yeah, I, I love that because I always felt like if you treat your employees great, they will treat your customers awesome. Yes, yes, and exactly. That is, exactly. if that's what you want, then you start start there. It's real. It's yeah. real.
0: Absolutely.